We're in the book of Jonah. The, the, um, the last uh, message that I have in this uh, Currents and Bridges series, a, 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 a series that's been intended to think about what's going on out there around us and how do we make bridges how, how do we use these as bridges into the culture? In the midst of that, one of the obstacles or, or one of the things in the way really is often some stuff that's in us. And that's what we see. That's what we see in this book of Jonah. In fact, that last song that we sang just before um, coming up was that reckless love, that God's pursuing love of us and uh, the bridge went something like this. There's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. Lie you won't tear down coming after me. That God's love fights for us. That even when we felt no worth at all, he paid it all for us. That, that's God's reckless, overwhelming love of God for us. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to understand. It's, hard, it's, it's overwhelming until perhaps it overwhelms us. We don't quite get it. Why is God like this? Why does God do this? Maybe you're like me. Now and again, you have kind of an aha moment. You're, you're driving down the road, let's say, driving down the freeway, and somebody comes and he's weaving in and out and back and forth and cutting people off and isn't a Big hurry to get ahead. And, and the line that goes in my head is, where is a cop when you need one? Where is a little justice? Where is a little law enforcement when you need one? Normally they show up. Normally they pitch up. Normally they're, they're hidden there along the side of the road right where you don't need one. Where are they when you need them, Right? And then it might not be a mile or two down the road, and you glance down at the speedometer. It's like, ooh, how did that happen? But to dial that back a little bit, and uh, glad there's not an officer around when we didn't need one, right? The, the, the reality of it is I want mercy for me, and I want justice toward others. I want God to work his justice and his rule and order in the world except in my circumstance. There, couldn't we have a little mercy, please? Right? Well, that's not unusual in the human experience. And that's right in the middle of where Jonah is living Jonah has just rejoiced. Jonah has just prayed a beautiful prayer. Jonah pens a wonderful psalm of God's great, gracious deliverance of him. And now in chapter 4, just a, a little bit later, we find Jonah praying again. Only it sounds a little bit different. I invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 4 and follow along with me as I read. We're going to be in, uh, if, if you're using the church Bible in, in the pew in front of you, you'll find us on page 775. Um, Jonah chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased Jonah exceedingly? What has just happened in chapter 3 as we heard from Nabu Mukin Apli last week? 
that God saw what they, hit, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster, the calamity, the, the word evil, that he would do against them, and he did not do it. God relents, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Where's a cop when you need one? Where's a God when you need one? A God who will judge and Jonah was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry, Jonah? Jonah, is your anger, does it even make any sense? Jonah went out of the city. He sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he finished his, his three days of preaching through the city. And remember, he said 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overturned. And so now he's, he's going to set up shop. He's, going to, he's got an outpost, a watch station. He's going to see, okay, they have repented. I know what God's going to do here, but let's just see. Maybe, just maybe. Now the Lord appointed a plant, and he made it come up over Jonah. That it might be a shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked what he might, that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, repeat question, do you do well to be angry for the plant. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And should I not pity, have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from the left. They don't know what to do. They're seemingly helpless in their plight of guilt and judgment. And, and, and also, much cattle. And the story ends. Abruptly, left for us to figure out what are we going to do with it. The irony of the book is the blurred lines between faith and unbelief, between the, the, the righteous and the wicked, the believers and the pagan, because we find the pagan sailors believe, and righteous or believing prophetic Jonah does not. And, and Nineveh believes and repents, and Jonah is the one who's stuck this tension between uh, those blurred lines, between the evil and the repentance, is played out in verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, it says. That displeasure word, it's the same word that has been evil or calamity, referring to both Nineveh's evil and ripeness for judgment and the calamity or the judgment that God would bring upon them. Okay? Okay? 
And now the word is used for Jonah's displeasure. It displeased Jonah greatly, or, or you could say Jonah is unpleasantly displeased. Or you could say, pushing the word back to how it's used before, Jonah is being evilly evil. The repetition is there, and the same evil of judgment. Now the prophet is the evil one, and Nineveh has repented. Why? What has brought this out in Jonah? Jonah is not merely unhappy with what God is doing. The real truth of the matter here, the ugly truth of it, if we'll look into it, is that, is that Jonah is unhappy with who God is. That's verse 2, right? God, I knew you were like this. I knew it. I knew if we gave them any time at all, I knew if we gave them any warning, I know who you are. And he's right about who God is. He says, God, why can't you be more like the gods of the nations? Why can't you be petty and small, prejudiced against those who aren't your people? Why can't you forgive a little less and pour out some wrath now and again when it's needed? That's kind of what Jonah's saying. Jonah says, God, I knew, I knew you were going to be like this. But the God who is for Nineveh, or let me put it this way, who God is for Nineveh is also who God is for Jonah. It's who God is for us. It's, it, it's hard to get, it's hard to sink in who, who God really is for us. And so we, we turn it around and we end up changing what we think of ourselves rather than what we really understand about God. We actually make ourselves better in our eyes, in some way worthy of God's mercy, and yet this story won't let Jonah look like that. Jonah continues to look petty and small and stubborn because we need to see ourselves as we really are in order to really see God's grace as it really is. Jonah's right about who God is. Look at Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. See how I do it my, just with my finger? Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, that's his covenant name, Yahweh. The Lord, the covenant faithful one, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, even 120,000, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Jonah is absolutely right about who God is. You know where that line comes from? Well, sure you do. It's Exodus 34, right? It's, it's, it's right up there. Do you know what happens before Exodus 34? Exodus 32. And Exodus 32 is the whole incident with the golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain, he's getting the Ten Commandments from God. His people are down here practicing idolatry and all kinds of immorality that goes along with it. First they bow down and worship this idol and then they rose up to play, which isn't just, you know, tag and things like that. And... In the midst of that, God, God would, would wipe them out. His judgment is, they are ripe for judgment, and yet, this is who God reveals himself to be. He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know what? Later on, 
In the book of Numbers, about chapter 14, when Israel is supposed to go into the land, they send in the spies to see it's all, everything God said it was. And they come back, and only two of them are believing God. The other ten said, wow, it's a great land, but you know, there's giants in the land. There's no way we can take those guys. We better just stay out here in the desert. And Israel goes along with it. Israel says, no, no, let's go back to Egypt. We can't do that. We can't believe. We can't trust God for this. God has brought them all the way. God brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, destroys Pharaoh's army, and God can't take care of these giants. And God is fed up. Well, he comes across as fed up. He, he presents himself to Moses as fed up. Moses, I am going to wipe them all out, this unbelieving rabble, and I'm going to start again with you. I'll make a nation of you in this land according to my promise. And Moses says, no, God, don't do it. You can't do that because that's not who you are. See, God is using the circumstances to tease this out of Moses. But Moses declares who God is, and what does he do? He quotes who God showed himself to be in one of Israel's worst moments. He said, you can't do that, God, because this is who you are. You see, who God is now for Nineveh that Jonah can't handle is who God has always been for Israel and for Jonah. Jonah's having a little trouble with how far God's forgiveness goes, but it is a good thing. It's a good thing that God forgives. That's who God is, not only for Israel, not only for Nineveh, that's who God is for you and I. We need to lean in a little more fully on who God is for us. When we do that, we don't have to remanufacture this image about ourselves of who we think ourselves to be, that we are okay with God, we're, we're acceptable to him because, yeah, we needed some forgiveness, but technically we're not that bad. We're a lot like Jonah here. We're supposed to resemble Jonah. He's made to remind us of something about ourselves. My moment on the freeway. Or that moment when a child runs and tattles to mom and dad about the same thing they just did an hour earlier. But now, but now, yeah, we're like that. We live, we live in Jonah's world, unfortunately. Yet, God also is the God who will by no means clear the guilty. He will execute his judgment we need to trust God for what is right. We need to trust God for the right outcome. It doesn't mean that, God, that we don't do anything. It doesn't mean we sit on our hands. We do, like Jonah did, what God tells us to do, and we trust him with what he does with it. We had an opportunity with uh, many in the summer of service brigade to be out at Hawkinson yesterday, representing our church into our community, helping our community out in a, in a good thing. Now, what difference that makes, we don't know. I get, uh, sometimes I get a little frustrated as a pastor because I spend so much time with church people. You don't realize how, what, what a loss that can be. No, 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 you're wonderful people. But I don't spend nearly as much time rubbing shoulders with unbelievers as, as, as you might in the, in the course of your workaday world. And sometimes I think, I don't get those same kind of opportunities. <laughs> Shucks. And yet, I get other opportunities that you probably don't get. I get invited to, to do a funeral for a family that never comes to our church. 
they don't have a church, but I've become, over the course of three different funerals for this one family, I've become like the family chaplain to them. They, they're funny. They actually have heard me preach and invite me back. And I got to share that again with them yesterday. Out of a, their, their elderly, elderly matriarch of the family who had hope, who some of you probably knew from, from, from the Vancouver Women's Connection and other places. And, and um, I got to tell the, the family and friends as a whole, again, of her hope. And that's unique. Now, what God does with it. You see, I'm, not, I'm just responsible to, to tell who God is, to tell of his grace, to show his glory, to represent him well. And I'm not responsible for closing the sale with anybody. God does that. God will do. I'm responsible to do what God would have me to do and trust what he does with it to him. God will be gracious. And at the right time, he will exercise his justice. He has to. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. And you long for that day, don't you? Don't you long for the time when all that's wrong will be made right? But don't let that turn our hearts. Don't let that harden our perspective toward the people around us like the Ninevites who desperately, urgently need our Savior as much as we do. Don't be too hard on Jonah here. It's easy, it's, 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 it's easy for discouragement to come when our eyes are on our circumstances. Same kind of thing. In fact, Jonah sounds a lot like Elijah here. After that great experience with the, against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and, and, uh, and Elijah's testimony concerning who is God is vindicated and yet, and yet following that for some reason at the threats of Jezebel, and it doesn't seem like anybody in the country is rising up in, new, in renewed faith and standing with Elijah against this evil monarchy, and he, he runs away. And probably in the discouragement of running away, he says, God, take my life. And God restores him. God recommissions him. God puts him into further ministry. Similarly, similarly, Jonah says, it's, it, it's better for me to die. The problem with the dual realities of our promised escape from the presence of evil against enduring evil in our midst in order to rescue others. That's a hard dichotomy. God, is, God will deliver us from evil, and yet we live in the midst of evil. Paul confirmed the same thing. He said, you know, it's better. Towards the end of his life, he's already in prison, first imprisonment, and he writes to the Philippians, and he says, you know, it's, it's, it's better for to depart and to be with Jesus. I'm ready for that. He says, I could go any time. <laughs> that would be great. That is far better. But he says, you know, it's, it's, it's more needful for me to remain here with you. Paul is already exhibiting that mind of Christ that he's going to call other Christians to also live in. Jesus himself, in his incarnation, he left the glorious atmosphere of heaven 
the beautiful environment of unhindered fellowship with his Father and the Spirit, and he entered into the presence of evil. He took upon himself humanity and the horrendous burden of it for our sakes, but needed for our redemption and to show on earth in humanity God's glory. That's what Jesus did. He left glory, entered evil for our sakes. God will use you in this Nineveh where good is called evil and evil is called good, where God's character is maligned, where his redemption is ridiculed. You and I are God's messengers, his ambassadors, if doing nothing else than simply faithfully showing his glory and what God is like, not in ourselves convincing anybody, just being used by God to show himself and his mercy to others. That's what Jonah has been doing as well. Be it ever so grudgingly, Jonah has been declaring God's messenger and God's character, and God even uses him, even in the midst of what is his seeming pettiness, God uses Jonah's humble example to challenge, to stretch, to encourage us to be willing to trust God. For his mercy for us, for his mercy to others. Now, what does Jonah do with his anger? There's, there's a positive example here in Jonah. Don't write Jonah off completely. The, the one thing Jonah does right is pray. Uh, it's a grudging, complaining prayer. I'll, I'll give it that. But it's a prayer. If you're going to complain, turn to that person next to you for a minute. Go ahead. Look at him. You, you got him. You see who's there? Most of you are still looking at me. Well, you, don't come complaining to me. And don't come complaining to that person next to you. When you've got something to complain about, take it where Jonah takes it. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He's big enough to handle it. And you know what? You might, in our bitterness, in our criticism, we can easily infect another. That's a terrible thing to do. But you are in no danger of infecting God with your criticism. He's big enough to take it. In fact, what he does when we do that, when, we're, when, when we come to God, there's this, there's this opportunity in prayer for a, a realigning of our own hearts more closely with God. Jonah's part right, and yet he's not all the way there, and, and it's amazing in this chapter 4 what God is doing in this story to get Jonah a little clearer picture of who he is and what he's about. He doesn't just write Jonah off. He doesn't just leave Jonah there to pout on the hillside. God still brings another object lesson to bring Jonah a little further along. He doesn't give Jonah just what he asked for. Don't worry about praying. I don't know if that's the right thing to pray, but God is not going to answer this prayer of Jonah. God is not going to just leave Jonah to die. God is going to Nourish his heart. God is going to provide shade, not for his head, but for his heart, and refresh him there. I'm glad God is sovereign over the request that we make. It's better for me to die. Sometimes I'm just being stupid or petty, little in the things that I'm praying for. And yet God will begin with me there. And that's where I need to be. I need to be where... I'm talking to God that God can be talking to me. 
The main point of this chapter is the comparing of concerns, Jonah's and God's. What matters more, the plant or the people? Is it Jonah's concerns or God's concerns? The closing contrast, you have concern or pity for this little plant. You didn't do anything about it. It just, it just, it just showed up. It showed up one day and was gone the next. It's not that you had a long relationship with this plant. You know, I, I planted the seed. I nurtured it. I watered it. I cared for it for years, and it's grown up into this beautiful tree. And now somebody came along and chopped it. No, that's not what happened here. Just one day it grew. The next day it was gone. Hardly any, Jonah is not here such a, a concerned and sensitive caretaker over God's creation. That's not what's going on with the plant. Jonah is concerned for his own comfort zone. What God has done here is God has actually created Jonah's comfort zone so that he can pull it back. Isn't that mean? Isn't that kind of harsh of God to do that? He gives him shade just so he can remove it, just so Jonah can miss it. And then he lets Jonah miss it more by sending this hot east wind. From what I read, it could be, it could be 130 plus degrees out there outside of Nineveh with this hot Shirako east wind off the desert. In fact, laws at the time would give special mercy would give reduced consequences for actions that people took in the midst of a Shirako because the heat so messed with your mind. It was understood. And God, God puts Jonah into the furnace, so to speak. God ramps up the pressure on him that he would be angry about this. He his relief from escaping the heat by the shade that the plant provided is kind of like the relief that God gives to Nineveh. It's a temporary relief, but it is relief. It is shade from judgment. And Jonah wants his relief. He doesn't care so much about Nineveh's. And so... Jonah's fixation is not on the care of, of the plan. It's his own self-interest. It's not genuine love. And here's where the story intersects a little bit with us. More than comfort or temporary blessing, more than wanting Jonah's will done, God wants Jonah to share his own heart. God wants you and I to have a bigger window into his own heart. Jonah, you cared about the plant. It came and it went. Should I not care about such a great city with, 40, with at that point, 2,500 years of history? Should I not care about the 120,000 people there who were like children in terms of they don't know what to do in the midst of the evil that, that they have got themselves into? It doesn't mean that they're not responsible for their actions. It doesn't mean that Nineveh is not responsible for their evil. But they have not had the privilege that Israel has had, that Jonah has had, knowing the law of God, knowing the sacrifices, knowing the invitation to redemption. Nineveh hasn't had that Nineveh hasn't had God's prophets until Jonah comes along and Jonah didn't really want to go. And yet God cares about them. That's why he sent Jonah. Because, the, the, because he cares. And so the, so the question lingers as the curtain unexpectedly falls. How does the story end? What does Jonah do? Does Jonah's heart soften, do you think? Does, does, 
God used Jonah further, or does Jonah die on this hill of stubborn regrets? Does, does the end of the story leave it with God relents, but Jonah digs in? The questions linger there unanswered because that's the question for you and I. We write the end of the story. Not then, but now. What are we going to do with a Jonah attitude? What are we going to do in terms of mercy toward the people around us? Will we embrace and rejoice in God's mercy for others, or will we persist in petty insistence on judgment at our terms? You know, when I was writing preparing for, for this message, one of the things that came to my mind was I thought, you know, really, there's two parts of Jonah chapter 4. It's we know God more. We know God in his mercy and his grace. We know God for how he's revealed himself to us, and we need to be outraged less. And if we, if we rejoice more in his grace and his mercy, we will be outraged less. We live in the land of outrage. We live in a land today where, where the rule of the day is if you're not with us, you're against us. And there is this grand division and everybody ramps up the temperature and ramps up the rhetoric and there's no possible bridge between the two. It's, it's a crazy place that we live in. And yet in the midst of that, we are ambassadors for Christ. The one who himself bridged in unfathomable uh, and un... And un um, how shall I say, an unrepairable breach. And yet Jesus himself stepped into the middle of it between God and humanity. And he reconciled us together in his body through his death for us. That's the perspective that God would give to us. First of all, he wants to give us his love for us, certainly. God wants to give us his love for us and he wants to give his love for us for others. You know, Peter had trouble with this, didn't he? Peter said, Lord, how many times must I forgive? And the Lord said to Peter, when you've stopped counting, Peter, it's just about right. The prodigal, in the story of the prodigal, the older brother has this problem. He is so bugged that God, that, that his father would be so gracious to this returning no good brother who has squandered away so much of the family wealth. And the father says to him something like this. He says, you know, all that I have is yours. The only thing more I could give you is the kind of love that I have for you and for your brother. That's what God would give to us. He has already given us all things in Christ. The one thing he continues to work in us, and he does it day by day. And what better way is there to work out his likeness of Christ in us than to pull us into Christ's work toward others who are just as undeserving as we are? The one thing God continues to work in us is to make us more like his son, to give us more of his love for us and for others. You remember Jesus outside Jerusalem. He looks over the city and he weeps and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Go ahead and put it up. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. This is Israel so unworthy. 
Nineveh didn't stone Jonah. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing. Jesus is weeping over the city. As they crucify him, what does he say? Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they do. The perspective that God would give to Jonah, the perspective that God would give to you and I, in our mercy received, is that it's a good thing God forgives. We depend on it. We need to rest in it, and we need to live in it. One of the best ways I know to do that is to look again, to consider again God's grace toward us. That's what this table is about. I want to conclude today at this table together, worshiping around our remembrance of Jesus' body given for us, of Jesus' blood poured out in death that he would give us his life. So as the men who are serving come forward, well, I say men, the men or women who's, who's serving this morning, as they come forward, as the worship team returns, we're going to come to the table again. And I want you to remember that steadfast love of God, that stubborn love of God, that overwhelming love of God for you. And even as the worship team begins and they play instrumentally first, I want you to think about somebody that is probably beyond God's mercy in your view or mine. And I want you to see our Lord Jesus as he wept over a city so he would weep for them. As they would pound the nails into his wrists so the Lord Jesus would say concerning that one, Father, forgive them. They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know what they do. I didn't either until I knew Jesus died for me. If his death for you is your faith, then we encourage you to join us at this table. First, let's just pause and reflect.